Okay, folks, it's good to be back with you once again. We've got one final session. Do you think you have one more in you? Good, good, good. I'm, I'm really glad because it's exciting to be back with you. And uh, our topic is counseling entangled people speaking specifically regarding sexual sin. So that's what we're going to get into. We have uh, a lot of material to cover. Uh, and we're going to try to take uh, a three-pronged approach, if you will. So we're going to work with the material. We're also going to work out of John chapter 4, so you can turn in your Bibles there right now. I will probably only ask you to turn to one other scripture that is not, uh, that is not in John chapter 4, so that would be a good place to put your finger or a pen or a bookmark or what have you. Um, and then I'd also like to give you a little bit of examples from a case study. How many of you have found case studies to be helpful as dr hodges right to hear oh this is how it's happened this is what the lord's done it's not just all in theory god really uses this god really does this so that's what we're going to be doing today we're going to be a three-pronged approach we'll be looking at the notes real fast just tell me do your notes have blanks or are they all filled in for this session blanks okay so we're going to get through the notes to make sure that you have no blanks by the time we're done and then we're going to uh, also look at a case study uh, that I'll be sharing just a little bit of information, not a, not a ton of detail, but just a little bit of information throughout, and also look at John chapter 4, and we'll also talk about my dog, Penny. And one of these, one of these, uh, one of these years, I keep threatening to update these slides and also to bring in a picture of my dog, Penny, but Penny's a boggle, she's a half boxer, half beagle, and um, we uh, were given her there was someone who, a friend of ours had found her, kind of rescued her. We think she'd been beaten. She had like tons of puppies and stuff. So she was that, she was a dog that was entangled in sexual sin. And we, uh, we rescued her and adopted her and took her into our home. And she, um, Penny's actually very smart. So I don't know if you've ever had a dog like this or met a dog like this, but she's very smart and unbelievably neurotic. Now she's not dumb. She's actually very smart, but she's just like easily scared. She used to be really, really scared of me. She used to be scared of most men, so I'm assuming that some guys in the past probably mistreated her or something like that. And I remember when we got her, our entire backyard is fenced in, and then there's there's fencing and wiring that goes around the entire fence because the people who lived in our house that we bought it from also had a dog, so this way the dog couldn't get out. But there's this one small part of our yard... That's a split rail fence with no wiring in front of it. So I said, well, let's just, I said, what are the odds? (laughs) Well, I said, we'll just, let's let her around the yard. She might not even see it. She might not even realize it. She's going to run around the yard. Just this small, I don't know that it's six feet long of of the whole yard. And it's back in the corner. It's not easily seen. And it runs out to the front of our house. So I said, let's just let her out. And we'll just see what, we'll take off the leash and see what she likes. She runs around the yard. And she's doing, you know, she's doing this. You know, and they run and they come over here and they go, and they just like, they want you to chase them. And then all of a sudden she goes, boom, where does she go? Straight through the, I mean, like, like it's not a big deal at all. Like just, boom, 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 boom. Like didn't have to size it up, just boom, right through. And I thought, well, there goes my theory. So we chase her. She runs into a yard across the street. She runs into the neighbor's yard, into their backyard. It's like, well, do we, do we call her? Do we chase after her? And she's having a ball. She's loving every minute of it. We get close to her. She goes like that. You know what I mean? How many of you, you know what I mean? You know this? Okay. So then the other time, another time we're taking her for a walk and I'm, I have her on a leash and we live near a golf course and it's a county golf course and we walk her on the county golf course. I don't know if you're supposed to, but we do. And we, we, it's kind of, 
it's after all the tea times, no one's there, it's really pretty. So <laughs> we're standing and there's this little bridge that goes over a little creek. And all of a sudden, I just feel the leash go clink. And I look and somehow, I don't know how, she got out of the leash, she got out of her collar. <laughs> She's scared of me to begin with. So there's no hope of me calling. She's not going to come. She's not going to come to me. So she starts to like scamper away. Then she gets into this, but she would go to my son. She would go to my oldest son, Justin, and my wife, Sarah. Nobody, none of us had a shot apart from those two. So she gets down to this really, really, really wide fairway. And for those of you from around here, if you're familiar with Boone Links, there's some really, really wide and long, like really long to lose a dog in fairways. And she... And then, like, runs down 25 yards. And you come close to her. Runs down 25 more yards. So I'm like, Justin, buddy, go get her. Okay. He runs after her. He can't. I mean, it's just not happening. He's not going to, she's not coming to him. Now, he's, I would say, 75% way down the fairway. I have two other little kids. So they're over here. I've got my oldest chasing after this neurotic, smart dog. I can't leave the kids. I can't help him because I can't run and ditch them. Ah, what do we do? So I yell after him. I call. I do what every grown man does, calls his wife. And I call <laughs> my wife who's home napping and just lives like, we live like four minutes away from this place. I'm like, listen, I know you're, I know. I'm really, really sorry. Penny got out of real. I don't know how she got up, but the bottom line, she, I need you to come. We can't catch her. You got to come down. So she comes down. She's walking down. But I then, okay, Sarah's on the way. So I hang up the phone. I yell out to Justin. He's a long way off. <laughs> and he is panting. I mean, he's just like, he's ready to collapse. So I'm like, buddy, buddy, come back without her. Just come back without her. He thought I said, don't come back without her. And he went, <laughs> he went like this. He went, <laughs> Okay, and he just kind of, and I was like, why is he running away from me anyway? My wife gets there. She's like, this. she's like, this. I'm thinking stupid dog. She's probably thinking stupid husband. And she comes there. I'm not even kidding. Sits down on the fairway. Crisscross applesauce. That's like the modern way of saying Indian style, by the way. That sits down the fairway and goes, Patty, Patty. Dog comes right over. She puts the leash on. And we take Penny home. <laughs> there was a point. Fun fact, I had started home with the younger kids. And um, I prayed. We stopped. We took a knee just before we got to the street. And I said, let's pray that, that mommy's able to get Penny to come over. She probably already had Penny by this time. <laughs> Mommy, so we prayed with the, the kids and literally said amen. And my phone rang and Sarah said, I have the dog. The kids were like, oh, God answered our prayer. Did God answer our prayer? Yes. That's not just a cutesy thing we say. God did answer our prayer. More on that a little later. Okay. Into your notes. Sexual sin has become commonplace. Sexual sin is not just, okay, there's sin and now there's this really special category of sin that we don't really deal with a lot in biblical counseling anymore. Sexual sin has become commonplace. And uh, what happens is 
biblical counselors frequently minister to people who have been impacted by sexual sin. And I think in your outline, you'll see those bullet points. Do you have those? Fornication, adultery. So we'll go through those right now. This is some common sexual sins that we deal with in biblical counseling. Uh, fornication, that's sex outside of marriage. Uh, sex Premarital sex is what we mean by when we say fornication. Whereas adultery is sex outside of the confines of marriage, assuming that the person is married themselves. Homosexuality is people engaging in sexual activity with a member of the same sex. Pornography, looking at something with the intention to be aroused. I hope you realize how broadly I just defined pornography. Okay, Looking at something with the intention of arousing oneself. So it, is, it certainly includes Hardcore porn sites, magazines, movies, but it's not necessarily limited to that. Uh, Lusting and masturbation. Lusting is not a sexual sin per se, but it certainly can be. Lusting, if you haven't already had this definition already, you can write this down. Lust is when my desire becomes my demand. Okay? So there is a big difference from me saying, here is what I want, And holding it with an open hand to the Lord, it might be a very good thing. To hear is what I will have, and you will not take it away from me, Lord. In fact, I will do anything to get it. Having a desire before the Lord with an open hand, saying it's all about you, Lord. You will do what's best. You will do what's right. Here's what I want. I'm not ashamed to say it, but it's all yours. When that desire becomes a demand, and we go from I want to I must, I really hope to I will have, that's lust. So lust is not, we hear the term lust used in the context of sexual sin mostly, right? But you can lust after a car. You can lust after money. You can lust after a job. You can lust after someone in a sexual way as well. Uh, Masturbation would be uh, uh, essentially giving uh, sexual arousal to oneself. And then, of course, child abuse. What's meant there, of course, is the sexual abuse of a child. These are just some of the sins, the sexual sins that we deal with as biblical counselors. And due to what is happening in our culture, uh, people do even more counseling in these areas, okay? There's a lot of that happening in our culture right now. Now, I want to also say there's a lot happening in our culture. It's always been a thing. So don't think, oh, we live in such dark days, we live in such dark times, that while God, as well-intended as he is, Bless his heart. Can you say that about God? I don't know, but bless his heart. He wrote this book, but it was 2,000 years ago. How in the world could God have had in mind, how could the people who were written these scriptures have had in mind the stuff that we deal with today? I mean, on the level that we deal with it today. The fact that, the fact that we can just pull up images at will. Pornography used to be, particularly when I was uh, growing up, it used to be... Um, You had to really, really, really want it and plan it out and go to the store and make sure nobody saw you get the store and pick out that magazine and put it in a brown paper bag or get this movie and and, and from the video rental. Remember, you used to rent videos. Remember, people used to rent videos. So you rent these videos and you take it home. You hope nobody sees you. Then you have to hide it somewhere. Like the, the level, the amount of effort you had to go through to pull this off was a lot greater than now you just log on, right? It's just a lot easier, and it's a lot more personal because you don't know what I'm doing right now. Tons of people are just sitting on their phones. Just look around you at the next red light you're at. 
I'm not saying everyone at a red light is looking at pornography. I'm saying everyone is constantly, you're like, I'm surrounded. But I'm saying everyone is constantly looking at, at these things, these phones. We're constantly on them. It's just a lot easier to have now. Okay, we have gotten ourselves into a situation in this country and in our world where we equate sexuality and beauty um, with the stuff that doesn't even exist because the woman or man that you see who's posing as a, as, a, as a pornographic ad or someone in a pornographic picture or a movie, that person is not real. And then people have become dissatisfied with the reality of a human being which always falls victim to time and gravity, right? Things just sag over time. Things just don't look as good over time. It's just the way we're fallen creatures living in a fallen world. It is no, it is, yeah, I'll say this. It is not coincidental that with the advent of at-home internet at high speeds and the advent of portable technology that we can have with us, all of a sudden, There's a place in the market for Viagra. That's not a coincidence. Supply and what? Demand. Now all of a sudden there's all this erectile dysfunction that people talk all about. Did that exist beforehand? Yeah, but the way it does now, as commonplace as it is now, not as much. But God's word has answers. And God's word has hope. And God's word has help. And sexual sin has become commonplace. And it might look a little different. We might be more aware of it now because we have the means to be aware of a lot of things that are happening in our world because of the internet and because of technology at our fingertips. But God's word still has hope and God's word still has help. How does a sinner become so easily entangled? How does a sinner become so easily entangled? We'll take a look at those notes. You know what? I forgot about Romans 1. Yeah, we're going to look at Romans 1. So we'll get back to John 4 in a minute. Go to Romans 1. I'd rather you see this in your scriptures than me just read it out loud to you from mine. So take a look at Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful, <clears throat> excuse me, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I want you to see from this text seven steps that uh, lead a sinner, lead a human being, when we're all sinners, downward into sexual degradation. I want you to take a look at the first part of verse 21. And I want you to see that there was a failure to glorify God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So this is when someone, the first step towards sexual sin, really any sin, right? But the first step towards sexual sin and getting down into the spiral of degradation is to fail to honor and want to please the Lord. It's when someone has taken uh, what God has made to uh, glorify him, what God has made to please him, and said, you know what? I acknowledge God, but I don't want to serve God. I acknowledge God, but I don't want to please God. And that's what it says in verse 21. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. Secondly, look at the second part of that, or give thanks to him. It's the loss of a grateful spirit. Okay, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're not grateful for what we have, but all we see is what we what? Don't have. We're not grateful for the wife or the husband of our youth. We're not grateful for the beauty and the, the, the joy of being single to the glory of God, but we are discontent and ungrateful, and we lose that grateful spirit, and that which we don't have all of a sudden seems better than that which we do have. Because where's the grass always greener? On the other side of the fence. But in reality, it's not. That's just how we perceive things to be. And then the latter part of that same verse, a darkened spirit or a darkened heart. They knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And you also see in verse 25, in the first part of that, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is suppressing truth. Suppressing truth. So when I, ta- I taught this in student ministry years ago, and I brought on a jack-in-the-box, a jack-in-the-box, where all of a sudden you, you can push it down as much as you want, but then as soon as you, as soon as you take your hand off, what's going to happen? Boom! That jack-in-the-box comes right back up. So we pushed it down. And you can make believe it's not going to come uh, back to haunt you, but in reality, truth is truth. Truth is truth. And that's what we do. We suppress truth. No, really, it's not a thing. No, it's not true. We suppress truth. We exchange truth for lies. Then look at verse 24. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sin tightens its grip on our lives. Sin tightens its grip on the life of a person who does not love the Lord, does not want to follow the Lord, does not want to honor the Lord with this part of their life. And they're given over to degrading passions, as we see in verses 26 and 27, and filled with all unrighteousness in verses 28 through 32. So the question is, how does the sinner escape from this trap? Well, just like we saw seven steps downward, here's seven steps up. Seven steps in in helping individuals gain moral freedom. And now you can see we're going to go back to John chapter 
4. First thing, we need to recognize and acknowledge that sexual sin really does not ultimately satisfy. It does not satisfy. Now let's take a look at John chapter 4. And I'm going to read you a rather large portion of scripture. And I want you to, and this perhaps is an account that you're familiar with. It's the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, or Jesus and the woman at the well. Let's see what truth we can gain from it. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria near Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and knew and, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying that you have no husband, uh, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have, is not, now have is not your husband, so what you have said is true. Checkmate. In verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. But our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and in... I skipped to... No, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things... And verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So here we have a woman who is ensnared in sexual sin, right? Ensnared in sexual sin, evidenced by a few things, okay? I want to point some things out to you in the text or in the account that we just saw. Some of this, most of this stuff isn't in your notes, but you can take it down or just listen. It's up to you. Jesus was on his way somewhere and got to this well and wanted a drink. That's why he was stopping there. So his disciples go off to get food. He's going to get something to drink. 
at that hour, and if you look at verse 6, it was about the sixth hour. So, do you know what time of day that was? 12 noon. Very good. It was about the sixth hour because back then what you would do, particularly in a Jewish society, is you would start the first hour at six. So six plus six is 12. It's high noon, arguably one of the hottest parts of the day. Most people didn't draw water at high noon, but Jesus, that's when he got to the well. That's when he was thirsty. He's on the road, right? So he just stops there to get something to drink. This woman goes to the well to draw water at a time when nobody else would be going to draw water because people would typically draw water in the beginning of the day for the day. And then at night when the sun had set, perhaps for the evening and the overnight hours. But she goes during the day because she gets to go alone. Because she's a woman with a reputation. Because she's the woman who six times a charm, right? She's she's the woman who's had five husbands and now with a guy who's not her husband. And she decides to go at that time of day because she can go alone. But lo and behold, here is Jesus, which she didn't see coming at all. And then in verse 7, Jesus, the great evangelistic opening line says, give me a drink. Because his disciples had gone away to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, check you out, right? How is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Like, like Jews, this, this doesn't happen. We don't do this. We're supposed to, like, see each other and then look away. Like, as if we don't see each other. We're not supposed to socialize. We're not, this is not how we roll. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God that it is, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she's thinking, check you out. So you come here with no bucket, no ladle, no straw, no pump, no hose, no nothing. You're asking me for a drink, and now you're telling me how honored I should be that you're asking me for, wow, wow. I should be so honored that you're asking me for a drink. Verse 11, she says, you have nothing to draw water with. The well, is, the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, drank from it himself, so did his son, so did his livestock. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Friends, the woman is talking all about the here and now. All about the horizontal. Actual water, a bucket, something to draw with. Who's going to be thirsty again? Jesus is talking all about something that is vertical. He's not concerned about the horizontal at all in this passage. He's talking about her relationship with God. He's going after her heart. So knowing her situation knowing the sin that she was ensnared with, knowing her reputation in a small town and in a shame-based culture, when you look at verse 15, you have compassion on her when she says, well, you know what? How would you give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to ever come here again? This is the worst part of my day. And then Jesus says, go call your husband. And then Jesus speaks truth to her that automatically lets her realize this is someone who is special. This is someone who knows what he's talking about. 
When Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, what did he mean? He means there are things in this world that can satisfy on a very, very, very temporary basis. Let's just face it. If sin was really no fun at all, nobody would be doing it, right? If there was no pleasure derived from sin, people don't just gravitate towards pain. People don't throw themselves into fire just just for kicks and giggles. If sin had no pleasure at all, people wouldn't do it. But the problem is this. It doesn't ultimately satisfy The satisfaction that lasts with sin is so temporary, so temporary, that it always lets down. It always lets people down. So here's the thing. This woman is ensnared in sexual sin. This woman is all about what is happening here and now. This woman is all about what is going on uh, in her life right now. And she's not at all concerned about where she stands before the Lord. And all of a sudden, Jesus meets her. Jesus tells her everything about her, things that he could have never known if he were not the Son of God. And all of a sudden, something changes in her heart and something changes in her mind. Because all of a sudden, she says these things. She says, I think you're a prophet. I think I realize that you are a prophet. And then as a result of her realizing he's a prophet... He then comes back to her and says what he says if you pick it up in verse 22. Excuse me, 23. When he says, The hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The things that you keep talking about, your heritage, your earthly relationships, these things don't even matter because an hour is coming and is now here when there are more important things for you to worry about than these things. And then she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us these things. And Jesus says to her, I've always pictured he makes eye contact with her. What a look he must have had when he would have looked at her and said, I'm that guy. I who speak to you am he. I'm the person who you are speaking of right now. But Jesus points out some differences between the water that he had been drinking of and the living water that she had been drinking of and the living water he had to offer. He said, the person who drinks your water is always going to have to drink of your water again and again. I can give you something better than that. I can give you something so much better than that. I can take care of your greatest problem, which is your sin problem, not your thirst problem, but your sin problem. And Jesus said the effects of that drinking water would be the fact that she would never thirst again. And she doesn't get it. And she says, well, you know what? I have an idea. How about you give me that water so I don't have to come back and go through this again? Why? Because she is looking for something and longing for satisfaction. And Jesus is the only one who can give it to her. Jesus is the only one who can give it to her. And she needs to recognize and acknowledge that sexual sin does not satisfy. That's the whole point of this. Sexual sin does not satisfy. No matter how many times she goes back to it, she's always going to be left thirsty, left hungry, left feeling a void in her life. Number two, she needs to confess to God her sin and cry out to him for forgiveness. We know that whoever confesses his sin, what will happen? God, who is faithful and just, will what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there needs to be an acknowledgement of sin. Okay, and that's what happens with any sin. There needs to be an acknowledgement of sin. An acknowledgement of the fact that I have sinned, I have erred before the Lord. 
There needs to be confession. Confess your sin to God and cry out for forgiveness. And for Christians, this is like crying out to God who's our father. It's parental forgiveness, right? If we're walking with the Lord, we're looking to our father just like the prodigal son did when he came home and said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then he puts a robe on him anyway and celebrates him because no matter what he has done, it can't change the fact that that is his son. And that's how God looks at us. So for Christians, this is parental forgiveness. What we call in your notes, parental forgiveness. We're looking to our daddy to say, I've messed up. I've messed up. We take hope from God's promise of mercy and forgiveness and from a cleansed heart. Number three, we need to confess to appropriate people sin and seek forgiveness. <clears throat> so one of the things that I'll ask a counselee that I'm working with is whom has your sin affected? Whom has your sin affected? Think about it. That'll be one of, one of their homework assignments would be to go home, think and pray about whom your sin has affected because we want to tell people who need to know that you have been convicted of sin and that you want to repent and that you want to seek their forgiveness for the effects of your sin. And that circle, we should de- de- define need to know. Who needs to know this? Okay, so I told you that I'll tell you about a counseling case that I had. And uh, it was uh, several years ago where a couple came in to my office and the presentation problem, okay, and that's a term that we use when it comes to counseling. The presentation problem was their marriage, but particularly his issue with pornography because he was going to look at internet pornography constantly. So they walked in, and she was all, here am I, change him. And he was all, I don't even want to be here, so just, I'm just here to, to just really just to check the box. And he was very open and honest about it. He just said, yeah, I, I really don't want to be here. I'm here because she wants to be here. And the minute she doesn't want to be here... I'm just, I'm, I'm out of here. So I'm kind of willing to sit here and give you one of these. But he didn't want to be there. And she, quite frankly, she wanted him to change. So would you say she really wanted to be there? No, she wanted to drop him off and like pick up the dry cleaning, right? Just wanted to drop him off, fix him up, and just let me know when he'll be ready. So she was willing to sit there. But let's face it, we're really here because of him, was, was basically her attitude. So we would talk and we would talk, and it turns out that he, would, he was looking at internet pornography on his phone, primarily, almost exclusively, on his phone. And I met with them for a long, long time. A long, long time. But my goal in that first session, you know what my goal was for that first session? A second session. Because it didn't look too promising that these people were going to be back. Because she didn't really want to be there. She just wanted something fixed. He didn't really want to be helped. He didn't want to have hope. He didn't really see the issue. And they both said they loved the Lord, but they would kind of wandered from him. Blah, 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 blah. So I was just really hoping that they would come back. Well, as it turns out, they did. And guess what? When they came back the next week, they were totally changed. Not at all. When they came back the next week... They were just inching their way into my office. He still didn't want to be there. It was kind of ticked that he now didn't want to be there for the second time. She's kind of upset that this, this wasn't like a microwave counseling case that, you know, just 30 seconds, he would be done. So we started to talk about their marriage. And we started to talk about their walk with the Lord. We started to talk about godly sin versus uh, worldly sin, which I don't know if you've looked at that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we talk about the godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation versus the sorrow of the world that produces, does anybody know? Death. 
Think of people like Peter and Judas. Two people who had a ton of things in common, including the sins that they remembered for. They both betrayed Christ in different ways. Peter had godly sorrow. He, he wept bitterly when he realized what he'd done. And we don't look back and remember Peter the same way we remember Judas, right? People don't remember the apostle Peter as, oh yeah, that's the guy who denied, Peter, who denied Jesus three times. I mean, it's one of the things, but it's not the thing. When you say Judas, what's the first thing you think of? He betrayed Christ. He, betrayed. he might have been a really great guy before then. We don't remember that at all. He walked with Christ. He heard him teach firsthand. He probably taught others. He was the treasurer for crying out loud. What do we remember? He betrayed Jesus Christ. Because his sorrow was not godly. His sorrow was worldly sorrow. And it didn't bring about change. It didn't bring about change. So we spoke with this counseling. I spoke with this, counseling, this couple in counseling for quite some time about their life their walk with the Lord, their marriage. Do you know what I didn't speak a lot about? What's that? Pornography. Do you know why? Because sexual sin is a symptom. Sexual sin is a symptom. It's not the ultimate heart of the matter. Sexual sin is a symptom. It's like me sitting on a tack and taking morphine for the pain when we haven't removed the tack. Sexual sin is a symptom of something greater, and we're trying to get to the heart of the matter. Sexual sin is a symptom of something greater, and we haven't gotten to the heart of the matter yet. So one thing that we want to make sure that we do when we counsel people throughout se- uh, dealing with sexual sin is that we don't just cure symptoms. We don't, just, we don't just fix symptoms. We want to get to the heart of the matter. And part of that is confessing to God and confessing to appropriate people. Number four, repenting is an ongoing process. We repent and we keep repenting. We keep repenting. We want to constantly put off, be renewed, put on. That's a lifelong process, right? We want to put off the old. We want to always be renewing our minds and we want to put on the new as we interact with the word of God, as we sharpen one another, as iron sharpens iron throughout the fellowship that we have with one another. We want to repent and keep on repenting. And repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. A change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. Because watch this. You don't want to confuse these two. Being disgusted with sin and wanting to please Jesus Christ are not synonymous. Do you understand that? Being disgusted with sin and wanting to worship and live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ are not synonymous. And sometimes this happens, the disgust with sin happens, but it's a while before somebody wants to please the Lord. And disgust with sin does not automatically mean the person wants to please Jesus. Sometimes they're just sorry because of the results of their sin. It costs them their job. It costs them money. It costs them shame. It costs them their reputation. And particularly in this area of sexual sin, when someone is disgusted with, or they're done with sin, they, they're just done, they've had what it does to their marriage. And in that, that's what this couple was like. They were tired of sin. She was tired of his sin. He was tired of her sin, even though it wasn't sexual in nature. And they were done with sin, but they did not have their eyes on 
Jesus. It's the woman who says, you know what? Give me this water so I don't have to what? Come here anymore. It's all about the here and now. Give me the water that I can drink so I don't have to come to this well anymore. They come into my office saying, just fix him so we don't have to go through this anymore. And he's saying, I'm here so I don't have to hear her nag me anymore. But it's all here, right? We've not mentioned anything about the Lord. So we talk a lot about Jesus. We talk a lot about Jesus and their walks with the Lord and, and, and what it means to put Christ first. The materials that I gave them had nothing to She was so frustrated because <laughs> the materials I gave them had just about nothing to do with sexual sin at first. And she was like, is he missing it? Is he a quack? The, the, the reason we're here is because the man looks at pornography. And I remember her like politely asking, kind of fresh. She was like, yeah, I was wondering if maybe you were, she would call me after the session. She was like, yeah, I, I so appreciate what we're doing right now. And it's been really helpful. And it's been, hey, are you ever going to talk about like the sexual sin and stuff that we came here for, that we put on the application? That's why we're, when are we going to get to that? She was just like, really, really, she didn't know like, are we, are we never going to get there? And I tried to encourage her and just said to trust the process and just walk with the Lord throughout this process and let's see what he does. Because we wanted God to bring about genuine sorrow, godly sorrow that would lead to repentance. That would lead to repentance and lead to salvation. Turning from God is never, never, never going to help. If we turn from God and just focus on the sin, that's, that's something we're going to have to look at, but not exclusively and not primarily. We need to perform what we call radical amputation by removing from your life what draws you into sin. Okay? Radical amputation. We have to remove from our lives what causes us to sin. Now, let's interact with one another. Week one, this guy comes into my office and he's looking at pornography primarily on his phone. Common sense says what should he do? What's the first thing you think he should do? What's that? Get rid of his phone? Yeah, pitch the phone, filter the phone, do something with the phone. Do you think he felt so, like, open to that instruction at that particular time in his life? Do you think he would have done that? Then I would have had a first session, but I wouldn't have had my goal, which was what? A second session. So I took a different approach. I took a different approach, and I didn't tell him anything about his phone. Now, you may not agree with, I'm, hey, I'm just delivering the news, okay? So I'm just telling you what, we, what I did. I'm not saying this is perfect for every single counseling case. I'm saying it worked in this particular case. I thought that if I told him to get rid of his phone, he would have, A, gotten rid of me, B, um, gotten rid of his phone and just found another way to look at it. I just thought we'd be just chasing that rabbit all over the place. So I let it ride. I let it ride. And the reason was he did not want to uh, perform radical amputation, okay? So he needs to want to perform the radical amputation in his own life. I can't amputate it for him, okay? So if I amputate things in, for him for his life, he may, or may not, he may or may not follow. I wanted him to want to do that. But radical amputation is important. We need to remove from our, his life what draws him into sin. But first I have to get him the desire to not sin. He didn't have that desire. He didn't desire to please Christ. So just getting rid of the phone, we're just, that's, that's giving somebody the morphine for the tack that's in their rear end. He says, I got a tack here. I, got a, I want to take this out. 
now that I've done that, do you have a Band-Aid? Like, like we, we've got to, sorry, graphic, but, you know, like, now you've got to do something about it. We don't want to put the cart before the horse. So radical amputation is important in its time. And Jesus was not referring to physically cutting off of hands or eyes and casting it far from him when he speaks about that in the gospel, but taking that which leads us into sin, that which allows us to sin, and taking it far from our life. Far from our life. So there's some uh, resources that, uh, particularly Mike Cleveland's Pure Freedom, and uh, there's some resources that are in our resource center also that you can be, find for yourself online that you'll find very, very helpful for yourself or for someone else who is wrestling with uh, sexual sin. But radical amputation is something that's very important in its time. I just wouldn't suggest that that's a first step necessarily unless the person is ready to do that. See, I've performed that as a first step for people. I've, I've said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut this out, cut this out, cut that out, cut out that And they cut that out, and then what I typically find happens, if, that, if they weren't ready to cut that out, I'm coming back to it again later on because, well, I cut that out, but I also had this. Well, I cut up my iPhone, but you didn't know I had my iPad. And you never told me to get rid of my iPad. You just told me to get rid of my iPhone. And I, ain't nobody got time for that, right? I'm not going to chase that and try to be very detailed with every little, little thing. I want to see a changed heart. And when that heart's changed... We can go there, and we will go there. But I think it's much better if that comes from the Lord working in this person's life. Number six, establish an accountability relationship. And there should be a definition in your notes of accountability relationship, one in which a Christian gives permission to another believer to look into his life for purposes of questioning, challenging, admonishing, advising, encouraging, and otherwise providing input in a way that will help the individual live according to the Christian principles that both hold. Accountability is a funny thing, okay? It's a funny, it's a funny thing because of how it ends up working um, in most cases. So I want to give you some, when somebody says, will you hold me accountable, I usually answer that question with a question. What do you mean by that? Because I'm not sure what exactly you mean by hold you accountable. Um, if it's Someone who you can call and talk about what you've done wrong every time and for me to say, oh, you ought not do that. And you say, you're right, I feel really bad. And, then, and, and we just do that over and over again. That might be helpful, but I find that more times than not, that gives the person comfort in their confession. And people confuse confession and repentance. You have to remember that. People can, they think if they've confessed something, they've now changed. But in reality, that may not be the case. Accountability best happens when there's some sort of a plan with that. So, okay, uh, I'm going to give you permission to speak into my life. I'm going to give you permission to uh, ask me whatever questions you want, and I'll answer honestly. But then I want to go back to them and say, okay, and if this doesn't work, what will we then do? Does that make sense? If this doesn't work, what will we then do? What's the next level? How do we ramp it up? Do we then, can we then call the elders to, to, to call to their attention Because we have to be working towards a process of repentance. Otherwise, we're just in this accountability relationship. So I think accountability best happens with someone who has some sort of authority in this person's life and with a person who says, and if this doesn't work, we have a plan to to ratchet it up a notch. If it's peer accountability, I think there's just a lot of I love you mans with the the hugs and the the hard-handed pounds on the back. 
And if you're guys, you, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about when I say that, okay? So most guys in the room know what I'm talking about. So the guy says, I slipped, I did this again, and another guy says, oh, brother, I know it's a constant struggle. Hashtag the struggle is real. I know we're going to give each other a hug, and it's really, really hard. Yeah, I know. We've got to pray for each other. Yeah, I love you, man. I love you, too. I'm so glad you're in my life. And they hug, and that's fine. They feel better about it, but they don't change. And then it's a week later, and it's, oh, it happened again, but this time in a different way. I thought I was doing so well. The peer accountability, there's... It doesn't really help. There has to be someone who has some sort of authority, preferably spiritual authority in their life to say, I'm going to call you to a task. I'm going to call you to a standard, and we're going to do something about it if you don't hit it because I love you. So an accountability relationship is good, but there should always be a what then. Okay, if this doesn't pan out over this amount of time, what, what will we be doing next? How will we be moving forward? And there's some suggested ground rules in your notes as well for uh, establishing an accountability relationship. I want you to look at number seven. Study the scriptures to learn God's wisdom um, in the battlefields, in the war for moral purity. That The goal of life is to please the Lord. The goal of life is to live a life that is pleasing to God. That we are actually not all sexual ticking time bombs. That God has given us the fruits of the Spirit, which are what? Love, joy, good. Uh, we've just betrayed that we read different, different versions of the Bible. What's the last fruit of the Spirit? Yeah, it's not a small miracle that two people can hang out together and like not have sex. That's called self-control. It's not a small miracle that the Christian can live their life and not Engage in sexual promiscuity. It's self-control. We have that ability within us if we're Christians because we have the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, living within us. He's given us the fruit of the Spirit. We need to remember that as we study the Scriptures, as we look at the, we look at the Word of God in Galatians 5, we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we say, wow, I have that in my life. I have the ability to do this because God has given me the ability to do this. Study the scriptures about interpersonal relationships, how we're supposed to take our thoughts captive. We just spoke about that in, in our church recently. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we would take our every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that the goal of my life is obedient living, that I'm supposed to control what I look at and how I look at things, control my eyes. I'm supposed to control my eyes when it comes to uh, what I read, what I watch, the images. Ladies, pro- many times I find that they need to control their ears because they can hear things and read things and rehearse lines and they're much more emotional in the way that they engage with things. But in reality, many, many times, and ladies, you may or may not agree with this, but many, many times it can lead down the same path of degradation that it does for a guy when it comes to pornography. Learning what the scriptures have to say about these things is important. Active participation within a church a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, and practicing church. So part of the homework that I was giving this couple had to do with getting more involved with their small group, getting more involved with serving, talking to different people and engaging a relationship with them because they were kind of in a small group in a sense that they were like within a mile of one but really weren't involved in the small group. So I wanted them to really join and really get involved in their small group. Look for ways that they can serve. Get involved in a Sunday morning service team in some way, shape, or form. Participate in the church. Active participation in the services and ministries of 
the church. I think it was session 23. Session 23. And we're going over. And what I'm seeing throughout the counseling process, what I'm seeing is their hearts seem to be really, uh, really softening. They seem to be enjoying each other's company even more. And there's been a couple of weeks where he would come to me, even though I didn't ask him, and he'd say, you know what? I didn't look at it all this week. Well, then there were high fives all around. But two weeks later, he would say, I slipped. Yeah, I was, had a bad day at work, and I just came home, thought I'd take a look at it. Session 23, he comes in. He says, you know what? I wanted to run something by you. He said, I know this sounds crazy. He's like, you know what I was thinking? I think I should get rid of my phone. So, here's what I'm going to, little difference between what I said and what I thought. What I thought was, you think? Yeah? Wow. Really? What I said was, huh, why? You know what? He says, every time I look at stuff, it's always on my phone. I don't really need it. It's not helping me please the Lord. It's not helping me and, me and uh, Jackie any. We'll just call them Jackie and John. We're not, it's not helping me and Jackie any. So I think I should get rid of my phone. I said, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. It, now, that was the hard part not to smile right then and there. Because it's like, you know what? I think that's a really, it's a, it's a great idea. It's a really awesome idea. Penny still gets out of my yard. That neurotic dog. Um, but it's not because I put the little chicken wire over a little split rail fence. I still have four kids, though, who leave the gate open. And, and I'm convinced the wife who sometimes gets frustrated with the dog and leaves the gate open on purpose, but that's a separate issue. And, and Penny now gets out. You know what she does? She goes across the street, messes in the neighbor's. She'll just go and hang out in the neighbor's front yard. Sometimes she'll pee by their shrub. I wish she wouldn't do that. Penny! She comes right back. She comes right back. I now walk Penny without a leash. I'm not a dog trainer. I don't know what happened. I can walk Penny without a leash. Penny can run up ahead of me in that same fairway, the exact same fairway. She kind of just runs up ahead because Penny will chase any animal. So any score. She's really well behaved, but she has no self-control, no fruit of the spirit in this dog, no self-control when it comes to like a chipmunk or a squirrel. All of a sudden, then she's like this hunter and she's going to get it and she never gets it, but she runs after it and she comes back every time. What changed in the heart of my counselee was not the rules and the regulations that we put into his life. His heart was changed by the word of God he wanted to please the Lord, and then all of a sudden, radical amputation was a no-brainer. I should get rid of this thing. I should get rid of this thing, because this thing is not, it's, it's not helping me at all. Why? Well, my goal is to please the Lord, and my wife and I, we're doing so well. I don't want this thing anymore. So he pitched it and got himself a dumb phone. He says all he uses it for anyway is for calling his wife and for texting. So he pitched this thing and said, I just don't need this temptation in his life anymore. But friends, you have to understand if he just did it when I, if he just did that on week one because I said so, his heart wasn't there yet. Do, do, do you understand that? 
He would have done a workaround. He would have found something else. Now his heart's there, so he's like, this is, I, I should get rid of this. I didn't install an electric fence in my yard. Penny would just rather be home. We feed her. We love her. Every once in a while, she gets curious and wonders if it's just as fun to pee on the neighbor's bush as it was last time. That aside, home is where the heart is. She comes pouncing right back into the yard, and then we walk her without a leash. What happened? What happened to Penny? What's that? Her heart, well, yeah, her heart changed might be, I don't know if her heart changed or if she just realized they're not going to kill me, right? One of, the, one of the two. Yeah, but there was a change in the way that she viewed what's safe and what's not safe. There's definitely a change in what she saw as good, better, and best. She doesn't want to run away. She doesn't want to run. She's neurotic, but she doesn't want to run. She still won't walk through the kitchen. She has to walk all around the other way. She's neurotic. She's a wacko, but she doesn't want to leave. She doesn't want to chase after it anymore. And now look at John 4. John 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, marveled he's talking with a woman. Look at verse 28. I want you to see the change of heart this woman has. The woman left her water jar and went away from town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. This same woman who came to this well at a certain hour of the day so that she could be alone has now went into the town to say, you got to see this guy. He knows everything I ever did. You've got to see him. The people are probably like, everybody knows everything you did. I mean, you're, you you no, 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 I know. But you don't understand. I, I've met a man. Really? You've met a man. No, no, not that. I met a man who told me everything I ever did. You've got to come and see. Come and see. Come and see. It's the Christ. You've got to come and see him. All of a sudden, her whole personality has changed. The thing that she wants the most has changed. She's not mostly concerned about herself and hiding. Now she just throws herself right into it and says, come and see someone who's told me everything I've ever done. This is the Christ. Could this be the Christ? And look at the result of her changed life. What happens? Verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Because the word of God changed two things in her life. It changed what she sees. It changed how she sees life. It changed how she understood the circumstances in her life. She now didn't find Jesus to be the annoying guy who's asking for a drink and then is so arrogant as to say that your water is so special. Now all of a sudden she saw Jesus Christ, her Savior, her Redeemer, her hope, and all she could do was tell others. And all she could do was invite others. Changes her like that. Why didn't Jesus say, wait, before you do that, you need to make sure that you go and you got to leave this guy and you got to do that. Her heart was changed her heart was changed, and then we would assume, one would assume that as a result of her changed heart, 
that things started being, she started to shed these sins throughout her life because that's usually what that happens. That happens over, over a period of time. The Word of God changes what she sees, but the Word of God also changed what she seeks. Did you ever notice that throughout the whole story, nobody gets a drink of stinking water? You know what one of the most precious lines in this account is? It's in chapter 4, and it's in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. Why is that precious? Because she now sought after something different. She now sought after something better. Now, all of a sudden, the fact that she needed water was of no account to her, and all she cared about was her relationship with the Lord. Why did he come in on session 23 or whatever it is and say, I think I'm going to get rid of my phone? Because now he sought something better. He put his water jar down, right? He wasn't there for the same reason. He sought after something better, and he wanted Jesus, and he wanted to please him, and he wanted to live a life that was God-honoring, and he wanted to have a close and strong marriage. Now, all of a sudden, he wanted something different, wanted something better. It's the same reason why Penny doesn't run all the way down the fairway, because she knows there's something better at home. We love her. We feed her. We walk her. We pet her, we hang out with her. It's better, it's better. All of a sudden, people have found something better in Jesus Christ. So when we counsel people who are entangled in sexual sin, we give them practical help, but always wanting it to come as a result of them having fallen head over heels in love with their Savior because ultimately he's the only one who can get them to leave their water jar to get them to leave what they were seeking after before and to seek after something better. Counseling people who are entangled in sexual sin is difficult, but not without hope. I would encourage you to not, to not uh, if you do counseling on a regular basis, you might get a, an application of some sort. I don't know how it works where you are, but we have applications that will come into our office and you'll see someone's, oh, someone's wrestling with anxiety. You think, oh, wow, okay, that's, I hope I can help them. And then you see somebody's wrestling with homosexuality. You think, oh, gosh, this is a special category of sin. I'm not sure if the same principles apply. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Oh, this is adultery. Oh, this is fornication. Oh, this is pornography. I'm not saying it's easy. There's certainly tangled messes because of the sin and because of the, the gravity of it and the effects of it. But don't be without hope. God's word is God's word, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and there is hope. We have probably about three minutes, and I'll give you five if you want to do any Q&A, because this has been some touchy topics, and we've looked at it from a little bit of a different angle and a little bit of a different approach. So I want to give you an opportunity to ask questions um, if you have any before we, before we break. Questions, comments? Yes, Ms. Koo. Um, yeah, 
I, and that's what I mean by, so the question was, in the notes, it, it, it suggests a peer relationship. I think there can be a peer relationship for support and for advocacy and for I'll be there for you, I'll pray for you, I'll encourage you. Um, accountability, I think, though, is best handled when you want somebody, to, when somebody wants to repent and they want to grow, it's best handled by somebody who can do something about it if they don't. So I don't think just a peer is helpful. I think peers should be included, but it shouldn't be limited to that. Usually in my experience, when somebody wants an accountability relationship, they typically pick accountability with somebody who it's a little easy to be accountable to. And I'm saying take it up to the next level and have someone who holds you accountable who can do something about it if, 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 if it goes awry so that can further spur you on to do that which is right in God's sight. So I'm not anti-peer. I'm just saying not just peer. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? I should also say this. I'm also not a fan, just to leave you in something super controversial and then close in prayer. I'm, I'm not a fan with, of just a spouse holding another spouse accountable. I think that is good and okay, but insufficient. I think there should be someone from outside of the marriage holding that person accountable, whether it's the husband or the wife. I think there should be somebody outside the marriage as well, particularly if it's the wife holding the husband accountable. I'm not saying she can't. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I think sometimes uh, in a marriage situation when the wife is holding the husband accountable, there could be opportunities for unintentional or intended manipulation in that situation, and it's not handled as well. So accountability is good, within a marriage, it just shouldn't only be that. Then it's still our private little thing, um, and I think it should involve people outside of the marriage as well. Yes? So the question is, um, particularly for the translation of the other room, the question is, uh, when a couple comes to us uh, for counseling, and uh, is there ever a time where you think it's appropriate to meet maybe one-on-one with, the, with one spouse or one-on-one with another spouse? And the answer is yes. So I think I, it's ideal, although it may not be realistic, it's ideal to have couples counseling couples in a situation like that. Um, if that can't be the case... Uh, for the, the situation that I spoke to you before about those two people that we were calling John and Jackie, I got together with uh, John apart from our counseling a couple of different times, particularly at the times when I really needed to call him to task. So I didn't want to, his wife already had a low impression of him, and I didn't want to tear him down in front of her, but I did want to tear him down. So I wanted to do that at Bob Evans. <laughs> but that's a, so, so we would have, and that was a good opportunity for me to say, hey, I need you to bring your A game. That was the A game conversation. Or let's really talk about the details of what you spoke about. Um, and there were some times when I would, I would ask him to step out of the council. He would step right outside of my office, and I would ask her to clarify for some other things as well. But it would be best done with, with couples, I think. But yes, definitely, it's not, I don't think it's inappropriate to speak to them separately or to catch up with them 
uh, through email or a phone call uh, in between sessions as well. One or two more. Tracy. If a friend, so the question is, uh, outside of formal counseling, if a friend comes and shares something with me, do I offer to keep them accountable? I think it would all go back, uh, I offer, in our situation, I usually try to plug them into community and plug them into fellowship, something within our church. So I try to make sure that they have fellowship with other believers in our church. Many times, as you know, that, that might look like a small group. Um, I suggest, perhaps, that they pursue counseling because I think accountability would come with that counseling. Um, but I think accountability is good when it's attached with something else, not just alone. So the accountability would be, I would offer the accountability uh, if there was no other way that they were getting care for from the body of Christ. But usually, if so-and-so were to join a small group and plug into that small group and, and, and lean into it, and so-and-so were to apply for counseling, they're going to receive the accountability in one, if not both of those, in both of those circles, certainly from the counseling. So in our situation, I don't typically then say, hey, let me keep you accountable, um, because I want accountability to be mixed with care and not just a, a, a slap on the wrist or a I love you man hug. Does that make sense? Okay. One last question, or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question was, uh, what exactly do I mean by authority? Like, am I like a cop or... Yeah, I mean, um, I mean uh, it could be any one of those. Someone who's going to be able to take it to the next level when that person says, no, really, don't. I'm, I swear it'll be the last time. So it could be an elder or a deacon in your church, depending on your church structure. It could be a small group leader. Someone who's not going to be able, you know, in case of fire, break glass. Someone who's going to break that glass when someone else says, no, 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 really, this really was the last time. This was a special situation. So it could be anyone. So when I say authority, it doesn't have to be like ecclesiastical authority or legal authority. But someone who has a leg up in some way, shape, or form who's not going to be afraid to then say, okay, I love you enough to take this to the next level. And... It just gets weird sometimes when it's a peer on peer or if someone's saying, well, you did the same thing. So, you know, and then if it's peer and I'm struggling with the same thing that he's struggling with, that's the blind leading the blind, right? Because if I say we have to take it to the next level and he's going to say, well, you have to take it to the next level and I may not want to take it to the next level. So it should be somebody who's not struggling in that exact same area and I think who's also willing and preferably able to then take it to whatever that next level might be. That's what I meant by authority. Does that make sense?